We're in a series that we're calling Heroes. And do you realize that everybody has a hero? The ancients had the myths, and the myths were all about heroes. I have two grandsons. They have heroes. These days, it's Black Panther and Spider-Man. Entrepreneurs, those starting a business, they have heroes. Business titans that have made it big and made a fortune. Athletes, amateur athletes have heroes. Those that can do incredible things that they would like to do too. What are heroes? Well, heroes are those with extraordinary skills, extraordinary smarts. They have ability, they have powers that most of us don't have. Now, my guess is that you have a hero or two, and I don't want to embarrass you, but I want you to think of it. I know you're in church, and so you're supposed to think of Jesus, but you can't think of Jesus as your hero right now. You have a hero in your mind? Tell the person next to you your hero. Just tell them who your hero is. I'm not joking. Go ahead, tell them. Now, I'm not going to go around the room and ask you for your hero, but my guess is when you shared a hero, you shared someone with extraordinary skill, extraordinary smarts, some incredible ability, and you in some way look up to that person and want to become like that person or be like that person. We have a problem then when we come to the Bible. Because biblical heroes aren't like that. In fact, God goes to great lengths in the Bible to show us that heroes are not extraordinary. Heroes in the Bible are ordinary, just like us. They're flawed and they're weak, and that's a good thing because that's where we are, right? But God uses these ordinary people to do extraordinary things as they trust him and God uses him. So here's a way to think about it. Biblical heroes are flawed and weak. They acknowledge that and God uses them to accomplish extraordinary things out of that weakness, out of that failure. God does great things. You probably noticed that last week as Josh got us started. We looked at Abraham, and Josh spent the morning looking at a flaw that actually follows Abraham throughout his life. Well, we're going to look at Abraham again today. We're going to look at two highlights of his life. I didn't want to leave you with just the flaw part. We're going to look at two highlights. We've got our work cut out for us. We're going to look at him two passages. Either one could easily consume us for a month. We're going to try to do both this morning. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to remind ourselves of the journey of faith, or better yet, the tests of faith. You ever notice that tests show you and grow you? School started, so I figured I better talk about tests, right? What does a test do? Well, as a student prepares, a student is studying for the test, the student is shown what she doesn't know. But then the student grows as she studies and applies herself and works out the problems. So this test shows what she is lacking, but then helps her grow to pick up those skills. That's exactly what happens in Abraham's life. God gives tests. The tests show him, but the tests also grow him. 
Now, there are four big tests in Abraham's life, and you probably already know them. Uh, Here are the four tests. First, God shows up and says, Abraham, get out. Get out of your culture, out of your hometown. Leave your family and friends. Get out. And Abraham's perplexed, but amazingly, he gets out. And then God says, settle down. Where? I'll show you later. Then he says, have a son. He's like 75 years old. Have a son. How? I'll show you later. Slay your son. Sacrifice your son. What? Abraham's whole story, which runs in Genesis, like from Genesis 12 all the way through like 24. So it's all around those four tests. God's giving the test not to show Abraham only his weakness and failures. God gives the test to grow him. And in fact, as you read through those chapters, you discover Abraham is radically different at the end, Genesis 22, we're going to look at that this morning, than he is at the beginning in Genesis 12. God gives tests to grow us, not just to show us we're weak, but to grow us to be strong and to grow us to be wise. Now, here's an important thing you should have already known if you were paying attention to the songs we sang this morning. Here's an important thing. Abraham, model of faith, illustration of faith, Three world religions look to Abraham as a model and illustration of faith. Judaism, Islam, Christianity. All look to Abraham, this father of faith. But here's the point. Abraham does not sit down, discipline himself, and try to screw up faith. What does Abraham do? He witnesses God's faithfulness. And as he witnesses God's faithfulness, his faith in God begins to grow. So biblical heroes don't really point to themselves. They point to the one that they're trusting, the one they have faith in. We would say, knowing the end of the book, true biblical heroes are flawed and finite, who God uses to do extraordinary things. And the most extraordinary is biblical heroes point to Jesus, the ultimate hero. All right, here we go. We're going to look at Genesis 15. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 15. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, even though I would love to read it this afternoon. Eagles don't play till tomorrow night. Uh, So let me me read the first eight verses to kind of get us started. And I want you to see, yeah, you should have picked this up last week when Josh spoke, pick this up. The default mode in Abraham's life is doubt. Does that sound familiar? Abraham's default mode is doubt. The default mode is not faith. Uh, I don't know what your computer defaults to. My word is set to default to Arial 14. I hate that. I never use Arial. I never use 14. I like New Times Roman 11. That's what I use. But whenever I open a new Word document, Arial 14, and I have to go in and change it. The default mode of Abraham's life and of our lives is doubt. It's not faith. If you're left to yourself, you will default to doubt all of the time. And we're going to see that in the midst of this chapter, which is often quoted by Paul to be an example of faith. Follow along as I read the first eight verses. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. 
This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. But look at verse 8. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession? Isn't that interesting? So the chapter, this this, um, default mode of doubt begins with the chapter saying, after this. Do you see that? Now, what happened in chapter 14? What happened is a great pinnacle of faith and victory. Here's what happens. A coalition of kings comes in, kidnaps Lot, his family, and the people from Sodom and Gomorrah and take them captive. God uses Abraham to go and rescue his nephew and defeat the coalition of kings. He's riding a high. Then the Lord said, then after this, the word of the Lord came in a vision and said, don't be afraid. Why was Abraham afraid? Because vengeance is real. Retaliation may occur. He defeated the coalition of kings. They may kind of marshal their forces and come after Abraham. He's the one that, he's afraid. Fear leads to doubt. And so Abraham's afraid of what may happen and he begins to doubt. What's he doubting? He's doubting God. God then says, Abraham, don't be afraid. I'm your shield and great reward. Now you would think at that point, Abraham say, oh boy, I got a promise from God. I'm good. I'm not afraid anymore. No, he's so afraid. What does he say after that? This is very interesting. Right after that, he says, but I have no heirs. I have no children. What does that have to do with being afraid about vengeance? Here's why. God, you promised me years ago that I was going to have a son. And I've been turning the calendar every month. And I still don't have a son. So now you're, pro- now you're saying to me, don't fear, I'm going to protect you. What happened to that other promise? What happened to that promise about the son? Isn't that where you live, right? How can you trust God for this little next thing when God hasn't delivered on the big thing that you've been waiting for? Abraham's default mode is doubt. Now, why is it doubt? It's not that we doubt God's promise. Here's the reality. We doubt God's goodness. Don't we? You think... You want better for your life than God wants for your life. I know you do, because that's where I live too. So let let me give you an example of that. Here's a a young person, maybe uh, just in college, wondering, God, what do you want to do with my life? So the person goes through this, well, Lord, do you want me to go to med school and be a doctor? Do you want me to go to law school and be a lawyer? Um, Do you want me to go to seminary and be a pal? I hope not. Do you want me to go to seminary? Um, Lord, do you want me to go to tech school and I'll be, you know, kind of a tradesperson? Or do you want me to become a street person and move to LA or New York? Is that what you want? Or do you want me to move to some island that's real, you know, back in, they're still living as if it's ancient world, and, and I eat bugs and monkey brains. God, what do you want me to do? Here's how we often process. You know God wants you to go to the island and eat bugs and monkey brains because... The most miserable thing you can think of is the thing God must want you to do. That's called the negative will of God theory. And you know what's underneath that? We doubt God's goodness, don't we? Abraham does. 
And so God comes and says, Abram, don't be afraid. The coalition of kings, I'm going to protect you. Yeah, but God, you never delivered on the other promise. Abraham's living in doubt. So God says, go ahead and look up at the stars. If you can count the stars, that's how many of your descendants you're going to have. And then we read the verse that Paul loves, right? Abraham had faith and God credited his faith as righteousness. God requires righteousness. Abraham and you and I, we don't have any. But God says, I'll count your faith in what I'll do for you as if you were righteous. Pinnacle of the passage. What comes after that in verse 8, though? So there's Paul's favorite verse, verse 8. Abram believed God, verse 6, credited as righteousness. But look at verse 8. Abram said, Lord, how can I know? He's doubting again. Verse 6, he's at the pinnacle having faith in God's provision. Verse 8, he's doubting again. Fear drives doubt. The default mode of Abraham's life is doubt just like yours, just like mine. We live in a world of doubt because we're consumed with ourselves thinking we know what's best. We doubt that God's going to deliver. Our expectations must be right. We can't trust God. And so we live in a context of doubt. You know what I love about the chapter? God doesn't strike Abraham dead right there. He says, I'll show you who you are and who I am. What does God do? Well, God writes a contract. Or in Hebrew, God cuts a covenant. You never write a covenant, you cut a covenant. And that's what's described here. So I was speaking to a real estate person yesterday, or Friday morning, and I said, how do you know, how can you know if the buyer is actually going to buy the home? Immediately said two things. They sign the agreement and give me a check. Sign the agreement and give a down payment. That's how you know. Now, Abraham didn't live in a literate culture. They didn't sign documents and write checks. They lived in a storytelling culture where they dramatized the contract. So here's what's going on at the end of the chapter. All the animals getting cut in half. Here's what's going on. Notice when God says to Abraham, now go get some animals, cut them in half. He doesn't have to explain to Abraham what to do. He knows exactly what to do because it was common. He goes, gets all these animals, cuts them in half, puts some of the pieces over here, some of the pieces over there. What's going on? They are dramatizing the consequences of failing to, to complete the covenant. And here's what they're saying. If I fail to fulfill my part of the agreement, may this happen to me. Now, in the ancient world, right, and even today, contracts are made between a superior and an inferior, a buyer and a seller, a sovereign and a servant, right? That, that's how they're made. Now, usually, only the servants walk through the pieces, right? If you're the conquering king, you don't have to walk through the pieces. The servant has no way they're going to kind of force you to walk through the pieces. So the sovereign sits on the sidelines and watches the servant go through the pieces. And the sovereign says, right, you don't live up to your part. That's what I'm doing to you. Every once in a while, you may have a gracious, kind sovereign who walks through the pieces with the servant. Kind of walk around and so, the, you know, the sovereign saying, you know, you don't have any recourse, but I just want you to know, if I don't fulfill my part of the obligation, this will happen to me. And if you don't fulfill your part, that'll happen to you. It's amazing who walks through the pieces. 
At the end of the chapter, God, symbolized as that smoking fire pot, right? God walks through the pieces. But what's more amazing than who walks through the pieces is who does not walk through the pieces. God never asks Abraham. And Abraham does not walk through the pieces. In other words, God is saying, Abraham, if I fail to fulfill my part of this covenant, that you'll have descendants, right, from your own flesh and blood, as many, if I fail to fulfill my part of the covenant, may this happen to me. And here's the amazing part. And Abraham, if you fail to fulfill your part of the covenant, may this happen to me. What? The sovereign takes the consequence for either failure. God is saying, Abraham, if you fail, may this happen to me. That puts a whole new spin on the cross, doesn't it? There we see the contract consequences actually falling on God himself. God didn't fail. We failed. And God bore the consequences. Abraham's not a hero that draws attention to himself. Abraham's a weak, flawed hero who puts faith in a perfectly faithful God. And he does the ultimate hero thing. He points to Jesus, the ultimate hero. That's what's going on in Genesis 15. Oh, but we got another passage. Turn over to Genesis 22. And remember I said to you, God gives these tests and the tests grow him. So Abraham has faith, right, in 15. You know, God sees the faith, counts it as righteousness. It's not perfect. There's some doubt. But that faith's nothing compared to the faith that he needs in Genesis 22. Check this out, beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. There it is, right? Abraham's journey. It's all about tests. Um, after a while, maybe you're like Abraham. Abraham, whenever God would call, Abraham must have said, oh, no. Every time God shows up, some nasty test is coming, right? He said to him, Abram, here I am, he replied. Then God's son, God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go with the boy over there. We will worship, then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but uh, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of, went, two of them went off together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. 
Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Boy, the faith required in 22 is a whole lot different than the faith required in 15, don't you think? Now, here is when biblical tests come. Here's when they come. A biblical test comes when the call of God seems to contradict the promise of God. Now, all tests are like that, right? So God promises Abraham, oh, Abraham, I'm going to watch out. Oh, leave your hometown. How in the world does your promise to take care of me and love me fit with leaving my hometown? How in the world to settle down in a foreign country? How in the world does that fit with you providing for me? You're going to have a son. How does that fit with your promise that you're going to do when I can't have kids anymore? Slay your son. Lord, now the son of promise has arrived. How in the world does the call of God fit with the promise of God when those things don't connect in your mind? That's a test. What are you going to do with the test? When the call of God seems to contradict the promise of God. Ever happened in your life? Tell the truth but I may lose my job. Ooh. Live a generous life, but I don't think I have enough for myself and my family. Forgive, but Lord, they don't deserve it. When the call of God doesn't seem to fit and seems to contradict the promise of God, now you've got a test. And what are you going to do? You ever notice that tests are painful? Sometimes it feels like God's trying to kill us rather than grow us. This week I was uh, thinking of an experience that happened years ago that must have felt this way to Megan. Megan's my youngest daughter. We were, we were in New York City, and one Sunday afternoon we were having a birthday party, and uh, they had a pinata. They wouldn't let me whack it, but they had a pinata. Well, as the little kids would go up and take their turns whacking, all of a sudden this little boy went up, and he went to whack the pinata, and he missed, and he got Megan right across her face. I mean, her, it still grosses me out, her forehead fell over her eye. I'm panicking. Thankfully, there was a nurse there, wrapped Megan's head up, rushed her to the hospital. We get to the hospital. She's screaming. I'm screaming, right? They come out. The doctor comes out and says, well, stitch her up. Won't be that much of a problem. Nurses, get her in a papoose. Say, well, we're going on an Indian hike or what? In papoose? Well, they bring this little contraption out, you know, a little tiny wooden board, and they kind of tie Megan into this thing so she can't. She is screaming, right? She now can't move. Doctors wouldn't let me back when they went in to sew her up. Megan must have thought, they're trying to kill me. They put me down so I can't fight back. They're going to kill me. When actually, they were trying to heal her. That's what God's doing. Sometimes it feels like he's trying to kill us, right? When his call is contradicting, it makes no sense. God, what are you doing? You know, there's only one reason. Abraham could do what he did in chapter 22. Because he has witnessed a faithful God in chapters 12, 
13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. What happens in 21? Abraham's 90-year-old wife gives birth to a son named Isaac. I love the way Hebrews says it. Hebrews says that Abraham, as he walked up the mountain with Isaac to take his life, he reasoned that God was somehow going to work. He didn't see it. You know, when the promise of God seems to contradict the call of God, you need to reason. Look at your faithful God. Don't try to drum up faith in and of yourselves. Look at his track record. Look at his track record in your life. Look at his track record in the Bible. Look at the cross. And all of a sudden, if you reason, you'll begin to understand, you know what? God's a whole lot smarter than I am. He knows how to work this out. I don't see it. I don't know how it's going to work, but I can trust him. He knows what he's doing. The son of promise, the one through whom all the descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven is going to come from, God now says, sacrifice him. Note, God does not say murder him. If God said murder him, he could have went into the tent and stabbed him. He says, offer him as a burnt offering. You see, all of Abraham's life, his legacy was wrapped up in Isaac. And Abraham was moving his attention away from God onto Isaac. The gift has become the focus of his attention. The gift was becoming his God. So God says, I don't have any rivals. You need to offer completely to me the gift that I've given and have me as your God. The call seemed to contradict the promise. And Abraham did it because the son of promise was born in 21. And even though this call did not make any sense and it seemed to contradict the promise, Abraham said, you know what? This God's a little bigger and smarter than I am. I haven't trusted him in the past the way I should have and could have. I'm going to trust him this time. And where does that story lead? just like every good biblical hero. Why could there be a lamb, a ram, stuck in the thicket? Why did Isaac walk down the mountain with Abraham? Well, because uh, there's another father and another son to whom Abraham and Isaac point. And there was another mountain. And that son carried the wood up onto that mountain. And there was no ram in the thicket. And there was no lamb. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because the ultimate lamb was sacrificed on Calvary, Isaac could walk down the mountain with Abraham, after pointing to the ultimate lamb. We need to reason. Abraham grew in his faith because he looked to the lamb. And you and I will pass the test as God shows us and grows us, and his whole life is a learning, growing process. But make no mistake, you're not a hero because you have extraordinary abilities, skills, and smarts. 
You'll be a biblical hero if you recognize your weakness, recognize and acknowledge your failures, and live your life pointing to the ultimate hero who allows us to continue to live and experience all the blessings that came through him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes we read the Bible in ways that call our attention away from you and call our attention to Abraham or to Isaac. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have the eyes that you want us to have, to look through Abraham and the incidents of his life and look through Isaac and who he is and what he's done to the ultimate hero, the one to whom they pointed and the one to whom we need to point. We pray in his name. Amen. 